Welcome to the Start of Grind podcast. Starting a company is not for the faint of heart. They're always questioning, 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 tweaking, tweaking, tweaking. Where we talk to entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and thought leaders about how to build a great company. Like my friends, like you think you're crazy. I think you got to be a little nuts. And change the world in the process. We optimize for impact instead of profit. It's never been a more exciting time to be an entrepreneur. From Startup Grind chapters across the globe. The chapter director for Cape Town. Boise, Idaho. London. Mala, Palestine. Guangzhou, China. And delivered to you every Monday and Wednesday. It's a Startup Grind. Startup Grind is supported by Columbia Business School, where entrepreneurial thinking is part of their DNA. Through their innovative programming, Columbia Business School students have the opportunity to put their entrepreneurial visions into action. Join Columbia Business School at the very center of business. Hey there and welcome to Monday's episode of the Startup Crime Podcast. Today we have a chat with Jason Stouffer, general partner at Maveron Capital. Jason joined Maveron in 2007 and is now a partner focused on investing in education, e-commerce, and web-enabled consumer businesses. He is involved with the firm's investments in General Assembly, Common, TrueFacet, Julep, Everlang, Coursero, Dollskill, and Lively. Prior to joining Maveron, Jason served as Senior Director of Strategic Operations for Career Education Corp., where he co-founded and led admissions and marketing for IADT Online, a for-profit design school. He's also served as an associate at Spinnaker Ventures, an expansion-based venture capital fund. Jason graduated Phi Beta Capital with a BA in economics from the University of Michigan and an MBA from the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. Let's listen in to Jason Stouffer, interviewed in Seattle by Mike Grabham. Uh, so again, welcome, Jason. Thanks for being here. Of course. Long walk from across the street. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I know everyone's families are at home cooking Thanksgiving dinner or getting ready, so uh, I'm shocked there's, you know... <laughs> so many people out here, so thanks for coming. Yeah, no, it's great. Um, well, let's you know, kind of jump into this. You came from, uh, you know, went to, went to college in Michigan and- Woo, go blue. Yeah. Go blue, <laughs> Spartans. Yeah. Uh, got lucky. Yeah, got- <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Thank you. <laughs> What got you to Seattle? How did you get to Seattle? I mean, why, why did you come, you know, Maveron? I mean, what? Why here versus any other city? So, I mean, the backstory for me is I grew up in Detroit. My parents were school teachers. Um, so I was, uh, I was at General Motors during the first internet bubble. And there were 400 consultants. There was, you know, McKinsey on the top floor and then A.T. Kearney and Deloitte. And uh, six months later, I got in a moving van and moved to San Francisco. Um, and one of my uh, papers in grad school was how GM's going to go bankrupt. So I, uh, I wish I had the money to be able to short the stock at that point in time. So I worked for a small venture firm in San Francisco, and then I went to Wharton for grad school. And coming out of grad school, I didn't want to kind of go to the, I wanted some operating experience. Because I mean, one thing that was pretty clear being an analyst at a VC firm is you don't really know anything about a company being an analyst at a VC firm. So, um, so I wanted to go to an industry other people weren't. I think you know the hard thing about venture capital is there's a lot of really small, uh, smart people who basically look the same coming out of schools looking to kind of do this job. So um, I didn't want to go back and do it uh, unless I had some operating experience first. So I had a passion for education and I went to a company in Chicago called Career Education Corp, which was, remember the get your degree fast uh, banner ads that were all over the web back in 2004? That was you guys. That was us. Uh, So I started their online design school. And you know, it was a poor product, but there's a real need. Uh, If you were a teacher and you had three kids and uh, you got a master's degree, you get a pay bump, right? 
or a cop, if you wanted to be a sergeant or lieutenant, you needed a certain level of education. And if you had an inflexible schedule, the ground courses at the time just couldn't meet your needs. So it was a bad online product, but I kind of joined under the premise of the products never, the products always start poor, and as an industry matures, it just gets a lot better. So I wanted to get in early. Um, I was the first MBA they really hired. Uh, their online business went from zero to 400 million in revenue in you know, four years, 30% operating margins. And it became very clear kind of a couple years in that there wasn't a desire to optimize for uh, student outcomes and the desire instead was to optimize for quarter to quarter uh, profits. And I think, yeah. you know, with a double bottom line business like education or healthcare, if you're optimizing for profits first instead of outcomes first, then uh, there's no long-term sustainability. So I had to get out of there. At the same time, my wife was on a train platform and it was Chicago and it was a blizzard in the middle of the winter. And she said, let's move west. So, uh, <laughs> so, so, that, so the decision uh, was made. <laughs> so uh, west, of course, meant California. I mean, you know, eight years ago, no one knew Seattle was kind of on the face of the map, right? Yeah. So uh, I had a vendor, a guy named Howard Lee, who's CEO of Spoken out in Bellevue, a venture back company over there. And uh, Howard knew Mavron. He introduced me, we chatted for four months, and uh, I came on board. So we came, kind of came out here as a great experiment, and uh, it's eight and a half years later, and we're still here. That's awesome, that's very cool. And what if, you know, in your you know, progression over the last eight years, because I'm, I'm going to assume, and I, I, maybe I'm wrong here, I'm going to assume you're fairly analytical when you started, in your kind of evaluation of you know, companies, and did, did, did you lean more on that side? I was quite analytical when I started. <laughs> okay. uh, I mean, you know, I thought, you know, for an, I thought, frankly, there's an, for an early stage company that you could actually look at a financial model and it would mean something. And I was really wrong. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So my question then is, coming, you know, from an analytical side, and now, what you now know eight years later, what, what do you think has been kind of a big learning experience for you over that transition from being fairly numbers driven probably when you started thinking, hey, it's just it's a numbers game, but it's, it's truly, you've probably learned it's, there's a lot of different variables there. I think some of my early mistakes were kind of being seduced by early momentum. And I think early momentum has some value, but not much. So I've gone from being, I mean, you know, for investing at the stage we do. So we're an early stage firm. We invest in seeds and largely Series A's, so three to seven million kind of first round, first capital in. And at that round, what's clear is that you're not gonna check all the boxes, right? So if you have a great market, a great person, you have great traction, then you know someone's gonna raise $20 million at an $80 million valuation. There's no way you could even do a Series A. Yeah. So I think you know when I first started, I would basically check the boxes on market and kind of product traction. And I think what's happened over the years is I think markets, you know, markets really important. I mean, well, my favorite Warren Buffett quote is, "When a great team met a mediocre market, only the market maintains its reputation." So uh, <laughs> you know, I'm uh, I'm uh, I'm I'm with Buffett on that. But I think on the um, on the on the traction side, I've gone entirely to people. I kind of feel like, you know, entrepreneurship is a completely irrational activity. I mean, to start something and say, you know, I've, I've had the privilege a couple times now of seeing people kind of go on this journey from, you know. Jason, I gotta stop you for just one second. Did you just say entrepreneurship is an irrational 
Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So somebody just tweet that out. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's great. Just continue on. It's, no. It's awesome. So uh, so I mean you know you go on this journey from obscurity to ubiquity and ubiquity doesn't happen very often. So yeah. you know you need someone special. So to go from uh, to figure out kind of how to bob and weave and solve a market is really really hard. I mean, I look at like, uh, you know, what an Airbnb or a WeWork or an Uber did, like you need the right market dynamics in place, but you need a really, really special founding team to uh, take advantage of the market dynamics and make it happen because it's not, it's not, um, it's not easy. It's really hard. It's not obvious. And, you know, I'm looking for people who are going to prioritize doing it over anything else in their life. Yeah. 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 And, and. What do you think, you know, again, along those same, same lines, that same vein, what do you think is the intangible thing that you're, that Jason, because you, I mean, Dan, Jason, all you guys have little probably things that are different and what you're really focusing on in a way of, you know, individuals. For Jason, what is that thing that you kind of say, that's the thing that I really think is important in the individuals of the team? I think part of it is you're partnering with someone for eight or 10 years. You can't get divorced, right? Like, you know. Even if you get married, you can get divorced. But if you invest, you can't get divorced. So I want to partner with someone. I want to lock arms with someone and kind of go to battle for eight or 10 years. So I think yeah. that's criteria one. I think criteria two is um, why them? So, you know, I think there's two big, there's a couple big questions. Why now and why you? Yeah. And I need to be able to answer both of those questions around a market, right? Um, I think uh, in terms of an individual entrepreneur, they need some advantage. Like I did a jewelry investment called True Facet and that entrepreneur, it's a luxury jewelry marketplace, uh, is a Techstar Seattle company, which I'm proud of. They're in New York now, <laughs> sadly. But, uh, but, but Tarath had a true advantage because his family was a De Beers site holder and he understand the jewelry supply. He, he had, he had a, a real competitive advantage in understanding the luxury market and having the proprietary ability to secure supply. Yeah. So other people would advertise supply with New York Times ads and he'd call his family connections and his was free and they'd be paying. Um, so, you know, there's a real story around, you know, why this guy? So that's, that's one. I think two is, um, are they willing to sacrifice everything and anything to do this? I mean, it's an obsession. Like you want someone who, like whenever anyone's like, I need a, I want to start something, I don't really have great ideas. I'm kind of like, you should go work for someone. Because the reality is, is unless you can't sleep at night and you have like this need to start something, it's too hard not to, to, to do it unless you need to do it. So uh, I want someone who needs to do it. And what that means is I don't want someone who's balanced. I don't want someone who has a lot of hobbies. I don't want someone who like, you know, goes on a lot of vacations with their family. I basically want someone who's going to like work 18 hours a day and build a team and a culture and like kill themselves to make it happen because you can't do it unless you do. Now, once you're at a certain stage, you can pull back a little, but... The best ones just keep going. Um, and I think the other is, uh, you know, decision making, right? So like McKinsey consultants are often like terrible entrepreneurs, right? Because like the reality is like they get a hundred, to, 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 to go to a meeting at McKinsey with a client, you need to like get the answer like a hundred percent right. Yeah. So, uh, but for an entrepreneur, like it's all about cycle time. Like, can you make, can you kind of get 51% of the way there, say, all right, we're going to do this and then, you know, kill it quick and move on to the next thing and kind of like, it's about kind of how quickly can you make decisions? And I think the, um, the, uh, 
the final two criteria is one, kind of being able to see around corners. And like I kind of compare early stage entrepreneurship to kind of putting a really complicated jigsaw puzzle together. Yeah. yeah. Um, and the really best ones are able to kind of see all the pieces and see how they fit. And they're also able to kind of irrationally convince people to, uh, to join them ahead of the time when they should join them. Like, you know, I have this entrepreneur I backed in New York. Uh, he has a real estate business called Common. And uh, the entrepreneur uh, convinced the woman who was the GC who built all kind of the Apple stores in New York to come and join him at, uh, you know, at a, you know, at a incredibly low salary with, uh, with a dream. And I think uh, and his CFO was an MD at Goldman Sachs, had an incredibly low salary with a dream. So I think, you know, uh, whenever people say I can't get people, I'm, my, 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 either the vision's not good enough or you're not charismatic enough to kind of do the impossible. So those are the people we want to back. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. What you know, it's interesting. David Hornick, another VC, sent a tweet out this morning. Uh, it's, uh, he basically, you know, there's more million-dollar lottery winners in the U.S. than Series A-funded companies in a given year. So it's, uh, it's really hard, and you have to be, and of the Series A-funded companies, most of them fail. So it's like, you know, yeah. you need to be really special to be able to, and a little lucky, to be able to create something great. Yeah, yeah, and, and your job is to find those guys. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, which isn't easy. Um, so let's take a step back. What, what did you, and I, I literally ask every guest this question, what did you, how did you make your first dollar that wasn't from a relative? I was uh, gardening at my synagogue when I was 14. <laughs> gardening, okay. Do you still garden? No. No. You hate it. <laughs> I do not, like, you know, I, I got fired from most service jobs I had. Because, <laughs> yeah, my favorite was I was at the cafeteria at Michigan, and I was serving kind of the football camp during the summer. You do not want to serve the football camp during the summer. Uh, it would be like, give me this food, give me that. No, please, no, thank you. And, like, I, I was kind of indignant. I'm like, treat me with some respect. So uh, I have a, a real appreciation for kind of what service workers do, and I don't have the inherent temperament to be able to... Uh, to do that in a gracious way without talking back. <laughs> without talking back. <laughs> and so, so now, you know, you've, you've been there eight years. You've, you obviously know a few things. You've learned probably a ton of things. Um, what, what do you think the next three or four years is going to be for, and I want to take it like, a, again, a 30 or 50,000 foot view. What do you think the next three or four years are going to be for your industry, for venture capital industry? Where, where do you think that's going to go you know, taking into effect angel investing, taking into effect crowdfunding, taking into effect all these other variables. Where, where do you think your industry is going to go? Four years from now. I, I mean, I think, you know, we're in a, in a current period where you still have a lot of late stage money coming in and you're seeing, you know, what's not, and you're seeing this, you're still seeing a delta between the public market valuations and late stage private valuations. So either the public markets are going to have to come up or the private markets are going to have to come down. You're already seeing a little of that. Yeah. And you know, you have all these corporations starting VC funds. Usually that's a sign you're, you know, toward the end of the cycle versus toward the beginning of the cycle. But you know, at the same time, you have a uh, culture in the valley, which unfortunately hasn't been replicated up here, which we should talk about, where uh, if you were an early engineer at Twitter and you made two million bucks, you live four people to a two bedroom apartment you're each working on your own startup idea and you're angel investing on the side, right? Yeah. So, um, 
And I think those people are largely, you know, largely uh, sheltered from the cycles. So your first three to five million dollar raise in the valley, if you're kind of in the in club, is pretty easy. And I don't think that a macro downturn is necessarily going to impact that a ton because I think the 22-year-old kid who is at Twitter who's fun in these companies isn't as concerned about wealth preservation as yeah. the people who, as VCs, right? So um, I think that's changed the Series A environment. I mean, our Series A prices we paid have gone up roughly 50% over the past you know, 24 months. And, um, you know, late stage, the prices have gone up 150, 200% if you kind of look at the PWC data. So um, you're seeing kind of a lot of this early money kind of displace the early stage VC funds. Yep. And you're seeing this decoupling of, you know, capital governance and advice. So if you're a really good entrepreneur, there's a bunch of them who, I mean, we have a couple in our portfolio we backed who went right from a seed to, a, you know, 80 or $100 million growth round. And, uh, and it's because they, um, they either raised money from high net worth people along the way or they didn't choose to take institutional capital and all the constraints that people like me put on a company. Yeah, yeah, there is, va there is value in that. I mean, yeah. if you can see, if you're able to see that far ahead, right? And, and what do you think, you know, let's talk a bit about the Valley in Seattle versus the other and again you and I were talking before that before us we came up here the culture in Seattle or at least the attitude in Seattle there's you know there's definitely and I've had this conversation with many 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 guests over the last three and a half years about the lack of money here uh, the lack of big ideas you know the swinging for the fences you know I've had that conversation many times where, where do you think what were things that would help improve on that here in Seattle? What, what do you, in, you we know. need a Snapchat or a Twitter or a Google, right? Like, so you have, you have, I mean, Microsoft's kind of ancient at this point in time. Sure. So you have Amazon and like, they don't exactly encourage entrepreneurship, right? No. Like, you know, they're not sponsoring this event. No. Google's sponsoring this event down in the Valley, right? Yeah. And people <laughs> come out of Google and the Google execs fund them. People come out of Amazon and, you know. <laughs> There's, uh, there could be a non-compete, which they try to kind of fight. <laughs> it's like, it's a different ballgame, right? Yeah, yeah. And uh, you'll have Zillow, Zulily, Tableau, Concur, and like the VPs there who, you know, one, the people start the companies earlier, right? Or sure. later, right? Later. So you have the 35-year-old founder with the 33-year-old VPs. By the time they exit, they're 40, and they're kind of like, well, I made my 10 million bucks. I'm going to buy my vacation home, and I'm done, right? Yeah. So uh, in the Valley, it's like you start the company when you're 22, your senior team guys are 25 or 26, you exit it, that guy makes the 10 million bucks, he starts his new one. Uh, all the guys who were like the exact back that guy, right? Yeah. And then they go raise, right? So they just, they have this ethos there. And here I think people are just, and you know, the engineer who made 3 million bucks isn't like four in a house starting a company. They're like pretty comfortable and they stayed at the acquirer like eBay or whatever it might be. And, uh, yeah. and uh, they don't want to take the risk. So I think we have a real risk-taking difference. I mean, you know, the, the upside is like every coffee shop you go into doesn't have a bunch of people saying like, hey, here's the company I'm starting. I mean, you have a very monolithic culture down there. And uh, I think that's, you know, that's... It's that's, like being an actor in L.A., right? Huh? It's like being an it's actor. Like being an actor in L.A., exactly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, up here, people lead a more balanced life, but I think that that's to the detriment of the entrepreneurial ecosystem. And the best thing that could possibly happen here is we have some crazy 23-year-old kids start a company and you get about, 
you know, a couple dozen young kids who are entrepreneurial get really rich. And I think that would be a real catalyst to the ecosystem. Yeah, yeah, I think, I mean, one of the things I think that we are, we, we don't do a good job in is reinvent, you know, reinvesting, right? Like you say, the, the person who has that great exit, like Daryl Cravens and, you know, Mark Vaden, those guys, uh, and they've done some you know, other angel investment, but we don't have enough of those people that are willing to write the check, like, six months later after they just got... I mean, Mark and Daryl have done a couple, Rich Barton's done a, a couple, couple, but, yeah. you know, I think, uh, you know, like, there's a bunch of people, like, you know... Like I wish the guys from Valve would do more. Like I've never seen them be out anywhere, right? Yeah, it's a great company. I think uh, I think there's a there's a real. Uh, I mean, a lot of entrepreneurs will say there's no capital. I'd say you know I'd say there's capital, but um, I think uh, you know Instacart was an Amazon guy and then he joined YC and stayed down there. Um, I I think uh, I think that there is. Um, there would be more capital if there's more people starting things. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, all of us need to catalyze that. Yeah, I, I, truly, I, actually, every, all, like you say, all of us, whether it's you, me, or anyone in this room, if we can help someone start a company, we should be trying to help start a company. I mean, yeah, and I think, you know, I was just talking to, to, to Michael beforehand, like, it's just as hard to, like, buy a few Subway franchises as it is to, like, take a venture-scale swing. Like, starting a company is hard, whether you're taking a small swing or a big swing, and I think, you know, there's a, uh, there's a real need for more people here to just, like, swing for the fences. I mean, we've seen a few in recent years, right? I mean, you know, we've, uh, we've backed a few in Araval and Pro and... Uh, and Dolly, um, we've had a few others like OfferUp, Glowforge. I think there's there's some there's some nice early stage companies here. So it's not like it's a desert. And I think you know we've spit out more billion dollar exits than arguably anywhere except the Bay Area and maybe LA now. Yeah. But uh, we're still like a, you know we're still a, a little stepchild compared to the Valley. Yeah, yeah, and I, I think also what we can do as a you know as a community is celebrate uh, you know the wins right and let those people you know be rock stars at some level um, and to help bring others along with them right like I played basketball when I was a kid you know in college and high school and I always had somebody to look up to because they were always better than I was right they were, there was always somebody in the next grade or the next I just don't know if we're having enough of you know, I just don't think we have enough of, of the coaching that happens with that, right? I don't know. I think uh, I think part of it is there's there's a number of people who have the capability who just don't have the desire to do it, right? So I think you know what you really need is your product and engineering folks from the success stories. Like, why aren't there like four companies that are SaaS companies coming out of Tableau or a bunch of real estate stuff coming out of Zillow? Like, I kind of feel like there's a bunch of people who have the ability within these companies. I mean. You know, if I look at, uh, you know, I mean, we back Zulily, and, you know, if I look there, there's a bunch of people with the ability. My hope is that, uh, I mean, we have a few that have spun out that are, you know, one's a CEO now, uh, Doug Alley, who was uh, head of product over there. Um, but we have, a, we have, there's a number of people there who I'm saying, you know, they should start a company. <laughs> so uh, they shouldn't go, like, be head of product for a Series B funded company. They should start a company. And I think, you know, the inclinations to do the former sometimes in, yeah. in this market. In the Bay Area, I think the thing is, is if you were ahead of product at a startup and you did really well, 
you're not really anything. Like, I think people kind of say, like, I'm not a success unless I'm kind of a rock star who started a company. And part of the culture down there is, like, that's just what you do. Uh, Part of the culture up here is, like, you know, you have a family, you have balance, you have a life, you go hiking, you go skiing. (laughs) You have a canoe, you go kayaking, (laughs) like, you run a triathlon. And down there, it's like you start a company. So I actually think for the culture of the city, like, you know, we're we're much healthier in that way. But I think that's detrimental entrepreneurship-wise. Yeah. One of the things that we can do is, you know, the people that you're talking about, you know, that have done well, they had a product, et cetera, some of these people in the audience or wherever having the idea and being having the, the fuzzies enough to seek out those people and say, you need to join my startup because of X, Y, Z, right? It's just, I think one of the things that I, I fight with is uh, people, uh, and people ask me a lot of questions about stuff, but they don't go out and seek out the big gun because they're afraid they're going to say no or whatever. And like say, screw that. Worst can happen if they say no. The best thing is like they say yes and join your team and like holy shit, what happens then, right? And I just think we need to be more aggressive, I guess, or you know, in, in our seeking of the big names. Yeah, the I think, names though, that, I think though that, you know, the, the, I mean, part of the challenge is that, you know, the big name who's a 50-year-old GM at Amazon, like, <laughs> yeah. not to be ageist, but, like, do they have the energy, the desire to roll up their sleeves and do it, right? Or is the big name really kind of, you know, the, the hard-charging, you know, early Uber person who runs North America and, like, you're trying to bring them on to kind of be your... You know, your, your early first kind of big hire. I think, you know, those are the people you want. A quick break from Jason Stouffer for some recent startup headlines. Apple has launched a smart battery case for its iPhone 6 and 6S. The rechargeable case provides up to 25 hours of extended power. The extended charge capacity is reflected in the iOS. It's available now in gray or white for $99. Yahoo has canceled its Alibaba stake spinoff and planned transfer of its core business to the new company. The board cites its concern for the market perception of the Abaco tax status and follows calls from Starboard Value for a similar move. Max Levchin also resigned from the board. The Sinclair Broadcast Group has announced the relaunch of the news app Circa in spring of 2016. It acquired it for $800,000 in March. The deal would give access to 172 Sinclair TV stations, and Circa would then hire 70 new journalists. The new app will use traditional ads in addition to native ads and would be independently operated. The first year operating budget is around $10 million. Let's get back to the interview. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so tell me about Talk to me about like some of the companies you have right now and just give us an idea of where they're going and how you're helping them get there. Because one of the things that I think is important for people to understand is what you actually do. Sure. <laughs> right? Because you know, that's a definitely a misconception of what, what you actually do for you know on a daily basis. So so talk to us about companies like um, what's the hot the clothing company? Dolly. Dolls Kill? Doll, yeah, yeah, yeah. Dolls Kill. Yeah. So tell us, like, Dolls Kill. Tell us, you know, first what they do, and then how, how do you help them? How do you, you know, what are you doing with them or for them? Sure. So, I mean, Dolls Kill is a really interesting story. So Dolls Kill was started by a husband-wife team. She was a DJ. He was her manager. Um, it sounds like a kind of Hollywood cliche. But she started um, modeling clothing on eBay and uh, really edgy stuff. So uh, it's basically for girls 15 to late 20s who go to 
Coachella, EDM, they have different dowels, which are different personas. So there's like a dowel who's punk, there's a goth dowel, there's an EDM dowel. And uh, they bootstrapped this business to an $8 million run rate. And, um, and you know, what was exciting to us is when you went on Instagram, it was just, I mean, go on Instagram now if you have your phone out and look up Dow's Kill. They literally will post a pair of, you know, pink shoes with a kitten on the back. It'll get 15,000 likes and 400 comments. <laughs> I mean, they really, like, kind of built this cultish brand uh, with a deceptively large market size. I mean, some of the biggest global DJs have 50 million plus Facebook followers. And this is kind of a global business in terms of sales that are 30 to 40% international. So uh, we backed it, uh, you know, I think for two reasons. One is just this culture and a consumer bad passion. And two is the CEO is really strong. I mean, his first business, he sold for tens of millions of dollars, raising very little. And like, even though it's a really edgy brand, he's a really good kind of manager of people. And I think that's where a lot of, you know, I think e-commerce entrepreneurs, what we're looking for is people who are, can cut through the noise and build a brand who are visionary and are really cheap. And he kind of fit, uh, <laughs> fit, fit those categories. The challenge when we went in is there is no infrastructure, right? I mean, it was like off the shelf, you know, Magento. There was no management team. So, I mean, you know, basically what we said is, you know, the, the social media traffic is growing like crazy, but the, you know, we need to put the infrastructure in place to scale. So what we really did was partner with him to help him hire a senior team brought on a head of finance from, from eBay, a head of merchandise planning from Amazon and Target. And a lot of what I'm doing right now is, you know, I just had a discussion in our senior team meeting saying, you know, hiring senior talent's like a knife fight right now. Like uh, every single person who's great has like six companies courting them. I mean, you know, we had one portfolio CEO who's trying to get a developer and they're like, yeah, we think they're a junior developer and Google offered them 320,000 a year. So it's like, you know, it is so darn hard. So I think, uh, you know, what I did with Dowskill is like, you know, I think part of the diligence was getting the woman who took Hot Topic from 15 stores to a billion and a half in market cap to take a look at it. And she said, not only do I like it, but the merchant there is kind of every, every decade I see three or four people who are geniuses in merchandising and she's one of them. So we brought her on to join the board. So a lot of this was getting the pieces in place, our funding, the credibility of Betsy the merchant joining the board and uh, you know, tapping our network to help them bring good quantitative talent to kind of match the art of what they're doing with kind of the science of e-commerce. And the business has done really well. So I think, uh, you, know, what are, and, you know, what are we doing every day? I think that's a case where you have a really good CEO. They know how to metric out the business. And there it really was helping him amass the right talent. And then also think through kind of what are the right strategic decisions? Like, do we always sell other people's brands or do we start making some of our own? Um, do we do paid marketing or do we not? I mean, that business does virtually no paid marketing and we have to figure wow. out, do we pull that lever or not? Um, you know, what's the, uh, what's the right type of team member to bring on? Do we want someone who is really good on paid marketing or do we want to bring on someone who's really good at reaching influencers in LA? Um, I think you're always faced with limited resources and just a knife fight in the hiring market. So you need to figure out kind of what's really important. And, and Jason, what do you, in your day, um, what's, what part of the day do you really enjoy? You know, I say day, but I mean, I'm, you know, what part of your job do you really enjoy? I think uh, the most satisfying part of what I do is, you know, I think with consumer companies, if you get one in four that really work, then you're doing really well. Yeah. And the most exciting thing is, you know, we've had, I've had it happen a few times with, uh, with Zulily, with General Assembly, with Everlane. 
Uh, you're seeing it early with Dallas Carroll. I wouldn't put it there yet, but it's close. I think uh, when, you, when you're able to kind of come out of a board meeting and say, oh my God, I think it's working. Um, <laughs> yeah. And uh, it's just so, oh my God. so satisfying because, you know, like I invested in a real estate business in New York common and I mean essentially the, the premise behind the business was when young people move to a new city it's really hard to find a place to live you have to go on Craigslist if you don't have credit history you can't get a lease and they basically said you know we're going to work with landlords and we're going to get them to put leases on to our platform and we're going to offer people kind of furnished month-to-month -month, uh, places to stay when they move to a new city and also satisfy the other need which is uh, social need of usually when you go to college, you build this social network, but then if you go work in a small company in San Francisco or New York, uh, you have no network that's lonely. So the other thing they do is a lot of social programming and kind of building a community around, around uh, the buildings they're in. So when Brad, we backed Brad on a Series A kind of pre-launch. It was a seven, you know, seven and change financing. Uh, it's really good entrepreneur we knew for six years and a big idea. And it was really, really, and then he launched and he had 500 applicants for 19 spots. And uh, we kind of said, you know what, that need which Brad gauged was real. And uh, it's not, I can't say it's working yet per se, but what I can say is early signs are really good. And those are the moments which you really crave because usually it's a day-to-day -day slog of like, <clears throat> we need to get this guy hired. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. We need to uh, we need to uh, we need to build out the operating metrics. We need to you know kind of go and you know do the day to day things you need to do to build a business. But there's those seminal moments, kind of post a launch or you know uh, you reach a certain point where you say you know the business is working, and that's extremely satisfying. And you know for for the uh, that's for you exactly. Thank you so much. Um, for you know your process to find the right entrepreneur, I mean that's not an easy process. I guarantee you that. But of your companies, how what is the what is the most interesting story that you can tell us of how you were introduced to a uh, entrepreneur, or maybe how they influence or just got to know you or got your your uh, you know one minute with with Jason? What was give us a story of like something interesting that's happened to you that. They were, they just needed to get in front of you, and they did X, Y, Z. They stood on their head, or I don't know whatever they did, whatever they. Any interesting stories? You know, it's it's interesting when I think of. Uh, I think the challenge is it's kind of like you know it's kind of like, uh, you don't want to go to the dance with the people who want to go to you, and go sure. with you. So I, I think you know it's more like you know for us, uh, inbound isn't that interesting. Sure. I think uh, I think what's really interesting is. We need to kind of fight to go after the people who are great because there's like 20 other people chasing after those guys. So I think for us, it's about building these long-term relationships. So seven of the 11 investments, and we have a seed program where we put a 100K check into a company once, one to two times a month. We do about 20 a year. And seven of the 11 investments in our current fund came either out of the seed program or came out of a venture partner EIR type of relationship where someone joined us temporarily under the guise of starting a company. So I think uh, for us, it's uh, a, a, a VC I respect once said, you know, I gauge my success by the number of copies I have. 
So, you know, one of the things we're doing internally is we're basically said, you know, we're, we're seeing, every week we track, what did we see? Sure. So we look at, here's the 40 firms we consider relevant competitors to us. Here's the deals that got done. What percent of the Series A's did we see in our core markets, which we consider to be Seattle, San Francisco, New York? We think we're seeing most of the stuff that's being shopped. Um, what we're not seeing is the guy who has a relationship with a firm, and I say guy because there's not enough uh, women, minorities, et cetera, starting companies, so we need to yeah. change that. But, um, but uh, we're, we, each of us is tasking ourselves with saying, here's the five people we want to back, and uh, let's build relationships with them over time to back them. I think the only case in this current fund of someone chasing us was uh, True Facet, where uh, oh. Tarap was in Techstars, and he kept saying, you know, you should really invest in me. And I kept saying, well, I'm not seeing enough yet. Like, you know, I need to see more. And he just kept, he was relentless. He just kept setting up more meetings. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, it was interesting enough where I kept wanting to go to these meetings, right? So, <laughs> exactly. I mean, and, uh, and uh, eventually I was like, huh, this is, this is getting interesting. So we did a 100K seed check, right? Oh. And then I kept watching and we'd talk every month and I didn't want to uh, lead a bigger seed round. So we introduced it to friends of ours at this firm called Freestyle. And they said, oh, we want to move forward. And then I kept watching every month. I'm like, this is just getting really good. So uh, I kind of went to Freestyle and said, you know, I know you put a term sheet in, but I kind of want to do it too. So uh, we did it together. And that's cool. And uh, that was a case where Tarath kind of really wanted us in. But I think that's the exception, not the rule. The rule is, uh, for really high quality opportunities, there is a um, there is an infinite number of options for entrepreneurs in terms of capital sources. So it's kind of like it's really really hard until it's easy, and like you don't get to you you uh, you have to fight to get the VC to take the meeting until you have to fight them off. So I think that's kind of how it works. Yeah, and, and that hundred thousand you do in that seed, are you taking equity for that? What are you doing with that? We, I mean, it's a convertible, you know, note, convertible note, or what? what we don't really care. I mean, we're not leading; we're following. We sure. view it as, you know, look, it's less than five percent of the capital in the fund. Yeah, you're I rolling think, the dice, but I mean, if I look at our marks on those, we're getting a, you know, we're getting a nice return on our seed program. Sure. But the whole point of those is to get a Series A, right? So, I mean, what are we doing with the seed? Every two weeks after we do the seed, we're calling the entrepreneur. We're meeting them in person if we're local, and we're checking in. How can we help? Can we help you recruit? Uh, what do we need to do for a Series A? And you're kind of building this relationship. And I think 15% of our seeds roughly have turned into a Series A. And I think, you know, what you're able to see, like with True Facet, I was, because I was meeting this guy every month, I was able to see, like, you're able to see when the inflection point happens. Yeah. And you're able to, you know, uh, you're either able to preempt something that could have gone to market, or I think the vast majority of the time, you, uh, you win the right to... Um, build a relationship and have preference in a deal, but you win the right to do it at market price. Um, so if there's yeah. six VCs and they know you, I mean, a lot of this is about who's the investor I want to partner with, right? And like, you know, I, I have certain entrepreneurs I like, to, I like to work with, and some of my partners have different preferences. And I think, you know, as an entrepreneur, you're going to pick the person, it's kind of like the devil you know, is who you're going to pick. And I think our goal is to, you know, not be the, but is to be the, the someone who you trust over a, you know, six to 12 month period post seed and pre A. Yeah. Yeah. So it's really, truly, like you say, it's a long, long, long relationship. Yeah. It's, and it's, it's 
extremely difficult, if not impossible, to get divorced. Yeah. 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 And it's bumpy, right? Like, there's times you don't like each other. <laughs> sure. It just is what it is. I yeah. think, you know, you have to be blunt. You have to be forthcoming. You have to understand each other's interests. And you have to respect each other. It doesn't mean, like, you're going to bicker because that's what you do when you're in a long relationship. You bicker. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and that's so, okay. So what you're telling me is you're a professional bicker. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think your, your role really is to... Uh, you're, you're not, I mean, even when something's really working, you're kind of, you're not, you're, um, your Still goal is to questions. really be a consigliere to the CEO and kind of be a sounding board, uh, be helpful where you can, and also kind of take a look at kind of the pattern recognition you see across the portfolio and uh, keep people abreast of uh, things like, you know, when do you raise money? Uh, what should my burn be in the current environment? kind of what are the yardsticks for the next round of financing? I mean, you're running a company every day. You don't have time to know this stuff. Yeah. That's my, that's my job to help. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's your job to know that stuff, right? Um, what do you think is the most challenging period in a startup? I don't think there's one. I think they're I think all. There's, I think, look, there's different stages, right? There's uh, your kind of zero to one phase, which is I need to develop a product which people want to use. Yeah and or service that people want to use and i think that's a very that's a tinkering stage right so um i think when people say they want to start a company i i, I think one of my first things to think through is you know what are you good at are you really really good at kind of tinkering and experimentation or are you really good at kind of taking something that's not scalable and making it scalable because once you start to tinker and it works right so I think like I look at Common in the real estate idea. So he tinkered, he tinkered, he tinkered, and he found this model that, you know, he got 500 applicants for the first, you know, 19 spots. Over the next year, he's going to have to get, you know, a couple hundred people in these rooms, and then over time it's going to be, you know, tens of thousands, right? So once you get to the point where you're like, okay, it works, then you need to figure out kind of how do I put the process in place to make this scalable? And I think that's a, that's a different type of person. So Brad's pretty self-aware. He's kind of like, I'm a really good tinkerer, and like, what I don't like to do is kind of whip people over the back to kind of hit their numbers. So like, I need to put some people on my team who know how to do that. Yeah. So you need to be really self-aware around like, you know, where are you good? Are you good at the early experimentation, or are you good at kind of putting scalable processes in place to kind of grow and scale the business? And I think you know, uh, every phase is hard. Zero to ten employees, you know everyone. That phase where you're first starting to scale, you put the initial processes in place. You still know the whole team. You probably still interview everyone. Everyone here should interview everyone until they have 100 employees plus, period. But, um, and then you reach a point where you don't know anyone anymore. And uh, that's really hard, too, because you're, you reach a point where instead of hiring doers, you're hiring you know, people who are managing other people who are managing people, and then you're hiring people who are managing managers. So I think uh, each of these stages is different, and I think uh, what's never clear to us, unless they've done it before, is you never know kind of, is a CEO going to be able to kind of handle the transition from one stage to the next? And you see all the time, you know, sometimes you get through to the other side and sometimes you don't. Yeah, yeah sometimes you just don't fit. The best usually get through, though. I'd say the best, uh, the best companies out there are still usually run by their founders. Yeah, and and do you think part of that is because they've they've obviously learned how to manage their own weaknesses and strengths, and and they've probably had some good coaching along the way to get them because they're most it's rare to find a talent that can go from one to you know zero to ten like all the way through. 
I think that I think what can happen with professional managers is that you lose the um, innovation piece, right? I mean, look what happened to you know. I mean, look what happened to a company like uh, Microsoft. It's gotten really a lot better recently, um, but I think you know, you lose the creative experimentation, the innovation, the kind of push to be better that the founder brings. And I think when you bring professional managers in, they're really good at running a business on the metrics. They're really good at like A-B testing the hell out of everything and you know, <laughs> sure. making sure that everything's optimized. What they're not really good at is saying, hey, you know, what's next? What's the next play? And I think the best founders are able to find the people who are able to, you know, look at Google, right? Like I'm sure they have the guy who's running search is probably optimizing the crap out of everything and is a really good professional manager. But then they have kind of Alphabet sitting over here and the founders are still really involved in kind of innovating, right? So I think, uh, you know, that's why I think the best companies are still run by the founders because they, they, they don't lose their kind of, I mean, Amazon's been amazing at that, right? I mean, like, they just keep innovating. And I would argue it's because, you know, the found, uh, Bezos is amazing at it, right? So it's like, you know, you, you, gotta, you gotta have that innovation headset. And I think the professional managers who often come in, they, they keep going on the core, but they, they're unable to, to, to have a broader aperture than that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. What what are you what are you seeing in uh, you know industries and again taking a fifty thousand thirty thousand foot view what are you, industries are you seeing that are interesting to you know Mavron or maybe not Mavron but just Jason uh, what what industries are you thinking are kind of tracking that's like, are interesting for you personally like is I think it VR most, or VR I think, what, what, what I think it's it's interesting I've gone from being thematically driven to people driven right like I'd rather find someone who I really, really admire who's tackling a great problem yeah. than being thematically focused. I do think, though, I have a real affinity for, like one reason I like to comment as an idea is I think, you know, the best companies are started in industries where you have a terrible consumer experience and you have brands that consumers hate, right? And you're able to transform it into a brand consumers love. So, I mean, you see it with Uber, with taxis, you see it with, uh, with, um, I mean, we have a financial services business called Earnest where they give you almost real-time decisions on lending and they're incredibly transparent around the costs. Um, I mean, industries we're looking at now, we like insurance a lot. Uh, I mean, common was apartment rentals. I mean, who likes their landlord? It's terrible to deal with your landlord, right? So like, you know, that's, that's why, you know, we love that one. And I think if I look across our portfolio, we have a real propensity to say, um, what's an industry that's broken and, uh, and what's a brand that people can relate to. I think also millennials relate to different brands than their parents did. Sure. So, you know, like what millennials, like I love Wells Fargo. It's like, I mean, <laughs> come on, right? I mean, yeah. it's uh, whatever you have, whatever you have an industry where, you know, where millennials can't relate to the brands. There's just an opportunity. Like, look at Warby Parker. Like, no millennials. Like, I love going to LensCrafter. It's like, you know, come on. So I think I think that's 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 where we we kind of see the opportunity to find a youthful brand, and I think also a brand which connects to people's ethos. Like, people want to know that brands aren't soulless. They want to know that brands are giving back to their communities. They want to know that brands have uh, have more of a double bottom line ethos, and that they're going to be transparent and not rip you off. So I think, uh, you know, whether it's lending or insurance or healthcare, 
like, you know, I think a lot of the brands that have emerged are ones which have a different kind of values architecture than brands in the past. And, and you guys are, you guys are, I mean, you're looking at consumer brands every day, every minute, every, every week. What are some clues? Who, who in here is starting consumer brand or is, is involved, like, running consumer brands? Like, so there's, you know, there's 20 people in the room that, that have some affiliation with that. So give us some hints or Jasonisms that help, uh, Jasonisms help, uh, you know, us as a starter of a consumer brand, what things would help us do a better job of that? You know, again, People you don't do enough consumer research. Like, I hate MBA thesis brands where like people are like, oh, there's a white space in the market, let's go after it. It has to be something that, it doesn't, I mean, I'm sure that in enterprise, like no one's that passionate about like, you know, email software, but I mean, you know, on the consumer side, I think you have to have it be something that's like here, right? It has to be something that you personally experienced. And I think, uh, you know, I think it's really hard if it's not. So I think don't take it as a thematic exercise of here's where there's white space in the market. Take it as this is something which bothered me or this is something that I think would delight me and it doesn't exist. And I think the best brands come from that place. Yeah, so it's again solving that problem that, that obviously it affects you. And don't sit around and code a bunch of stuff. Talk to customers first. Like, go out there and figure out what people want and is what people want really what you want. And, uh, like, you know, like, go, like, you know, one of my favorite entrepreneurs locally is this guy, Dan Lewis, who has a business convoy. Uh, it's like a Uber for trucking kind of thing. And Dan, like, he literally would, like, go on rides with long-haul truckers when he was starting this thing. And it's like, you know... It's uh, you got to do that. Yeah, and I mean, you got to you got to know who your customer is. Yeah, and the only way to know it is spend time with them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and so, if if we have a consumer brand, you know that we've we've done our research, we th we think there's a problem to be solved. Um, in your opinion, what is you know what are some of the the clues or at least things that we should do as an entrepreneur? What are those things that we need to do that we that you just can't miss, you can't mess up. What are the things when we're starting that brand, what are the things you just can't mess up? Well, I think, you know, I think the big question to answer is who cares? Like, there's, I mean, go on Facebook. How many messages are being thrown at you every day? Yeah. Why do you matter? Like, what's your reason for being? Um, and how are you gonna make people aware of that? How are you gonna break out from the noise? And I think, uh, I, I think, you know, um, you know I, what can't you mess up? I mean, you, you need an early team that's as passionate as you are, but you need to have answers around, you know, why should this matter? Why am I different? Why am I the right person to do this? And how am I going to, you know, break through the noise? Breaking through the noise is really hard. And you don't want to get stuck in this trap of using Facebook advertising or Google advertising to kind of buy customers. Because all that really does is, you know, I think over time what ends up happening, and my, my thing recently has been, you know, I have a real preference for people who are able to organically build a swirl of consumer passion versus doing it through paid advertising. Because I think you know, all that you really do when you are become too dependent on paid advertising is you, uh, you compete with a bunch of other people in the industry who are dependent on paid advertising, and you, the profits accrue to Google, Facebook, and the platforms. So um, 
don't get yourself caught in that trap. Like figure out like how am I going to get people to use this thing in a more organic way, and then uh, then invest. Invest there. Oh, that's good. Very good. And what you know again, coming from a consumer standpoint, what pieces of the um, of that process you're talking about do you think is the hardest to nail? What's the hardest thing to nail? Like just... I think going zero to one's really hard. I think for a consumer business, just getting to a place where people love the product is the and use part. it is just really hard. Yeah. And, and your, your, your feeling is if you can get to the one, right? If you can get from zero to yeah. one, you have a high propensity to be successful, you know, at Maybe, least some but level. then you need to get people to pay for it. You need yeah. to how to get know how to get you know beyond that early early adopter set to a broader audience. There's a lot of steps, but just getting a product people love is hard enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's the hardest. That's the hardest first step. I mean, the number of people we meet every year. Like, you know, what percent of them, it's less than, you know, less than two or three percent actually get to a point where, like, you actually have real usage of the thing. So I think, yeah. you know, for, for, for the relevant to the kind of the, the stage of most of the folks in this room is, like, getting to a place where people care, like, care that you exist. Even if it's a small group of early adopters who care that you exist, uh, that's really important. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, questions and just couple minutes so have something in your heads um, in your in your process of you know evaluating companies evaluating entrepreneurs uh, what's the thing that you what's the thing that you uh, put a lot of weight on for an entrepreneur there's, um, there's got to be a one or two things that are Jason things I mean I call them you know they're they're your things uh, that you really care about ability to attract talent I mean my most recent investments my first Seattle investment in a while I'm excited about it called Dolly um, essentially think of it as if you go to crate and barrel and order furniture they'll give you like a window to, to get it delivered right they'll say hey between 10 and 2 on Tuesday you need to sit around and wait the guy will probably show up at three o'clock. It's like an awful consumer experience. Yeah. So they have a network of kind of pickup trucks where whether you're delivering stuff to the dump, buying something on Craigslist, going to a furniture store, you can kind of real-time schedule uh, someone to come and pick it up and you can track it on your phone just like it's Uber and you know, it's, uh, it's incredibly simple. So that entrepreneur is a guy named Mike Howell. Mike, uh, Mike, um, and so what you're looking for is the ability to marshal resources is kind of thing number one. So Mike, uh, his, uh, his mentor is Jeff Wilkie from Amazon. Uh, Jeff speaks really highly of him. The fact that you know, Jeff's spending some time with him every month speaks volumes because of kind of just how busy he is. Sure. Um, he worked at Wet Paint. Uh, ben, we knew Ben. Ben's, ben it, it, Mike was clearly a star there. Um, and, uh, you know, Mike, one of his first hires was uh, a woman, Kristen Smith, who was fantastic at Zulily. She ran Cobe Fellows after that. She kind of took ops at Zulily from 10 to a couple hundred million. And we watched her kind of stand up these fulfillment centers. And we said, you know, the minute Mike at Dolly gets, uh, you know, wants to go to a bunch of cities quick, she's going to just, she's going to be able to kind of move faster than it is humanly possible to do it. So Mike kind of, what, 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 
What was interesting to us is a bunch of people who are highly time constrained put both their time and capital against Mike early before it was obvious. And he was able to marshal resources uh, to his team. I think, uh, I think secondly, he was able to roll his sleeves up and figure out kind of what's the strategy in a market and kind of how do I start to uh, scale the business. And I think third, the ability to kind of create this craveable, wonderful consumer experience and having this consumer-centric headset. So, uh, you know, they have an MPS in the 80s. So, I mean, an MPS score is kind of, you know, you ask people, would you recommend this to a colleague or friend? Apple 70, I think. Yeah. Uh, essentially, he created this, he turned, you know, moving stuff from this incredible pain point into a delay point. And I love when people are able to turn something which is the bane of your existence into something you love. Now, now the challenge is kind of going from Chicago and Seattle and scaling this to, you know, a national company. But I think, you know, what we saw with Mike was he can marshal resources, he can figure stuff out, he can build a great product, and uh, uh, he, he, he's a decisive decision maker who inspired confidence in us. So I think you know all those things combined made us you know want to want to want to get behind them and you know um, it's uh, it's uh, it's uh, I think you uh, whenever you make an investment decision you always vacillate from so excited about it to you know you write the check and wake up the next day and say what the hell you know did I just do right <laughs> so I think it's really scary because it's never obvious yeah and. Uh, you won't know if you're right or not for a for long, long time. time. Yeah, yeah like so uh, so I month. think you know. I, I think I think once you're six to twelve months in, you're able to kind of say, you know, is this is the thesis against which we invested in? Does that look like it's playing out? Yeah. But uh, even if the answer to that's no, it could be a different thesis is playing out. So I think you know you're you're ultimately backing a a team, and you're backing uh, you're you're backing a team, you're backing an idea, and you're backing you know a dream. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, which is never easy, any of those steps. Startup Grind is supported by Columbia Business School, where entrepreneurial thinking is part of their DNA. Through their innovative programming, Columbia Business School students have the opportunity to put their entrepreneurial visions into action. Join Columbia Business School at the very center of business.